Welcome, Poddlers. My guest this week is, and this is all in capital letters, the man who discovered Dragon's Den, or Shark Tank, as it's known in the US. Tim Crescenti is the founder and owner of Small World IFT, probably the foremost company specialising in the international TV formats business. His career includes spells at Sony Pictures Television and Fox Studios, and his company recently partnered with MGM and the format legend that is Mark Burnett. So there really is no better person to talk to when it comes to the business of TV formats and the latest COVID-19 affected trends. Hi Tim, welcome to the pod. Good to see you. It's been it's been a while since uh, we would have our, our, our morning breakfast at Bills. So it's I, I miss my I miss my London time. Bills, I have no idea if Bills even still exists. I, I haven't been into the centre of town for months now and been nowhere near a Bills. The one you're talking about in Soho, I think, could yep. probably survive the zombie apocalypse. It was always very busy. This is the longest time I have not been to an airport. I think since 1998. It's now what five months, so I'm I'm chopping at the bit to get on the on a plane and get to somewhere to find uh, find another format. First of all, it would be really interesting to get a bit of an insight into how you got into the business in general, TV in general, and then sort of segued into the world of formats. I must have lost a bet somewhere in my life. Now I was an odd child for many reasons, and I know you're not shocked. But uh, 13, I wanted to get into television. I wanted to run my own television network. After I got out of college, the world television changed. All of a sudden, there were more than three channels in the U.S. So I learned, hey, supply and demand. It's the one thing I remember from economics class. And they're going to need more production. So I ended up getting more in the production side, working on Wheel of Fortune uh, with Merv Griffin Enterprises and did that for a few years in his development team. Believe it or not, back in the day, and this is 84, 85, they would do four puzzles a show. And we, I was a researcher. And people go, what the hell do you research on Wheel of Fortune? But we would have to research the spelling, the punctuation. So it was, if it's Burt Reynolds, where is the S? We had to have three pieces of, of, of confirmation that Burt Reynolds is spelled B-U-R-T-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S. And it seems silly, but people will spell Burt B-E-R-T. And then during the show, I was in charge of working the puzzle board, uh, giving the numbers on a chalkboard so Pop, so Pat Sajak could look at the board and go, Danny Goldman, you've got $2,000. What are you going to call for an L or an N? So those are my roots in, in working on, wow. on TV production. And then at yeah. some point, you ended up at Sony Pictures, which is where we first met. And you were very well known as being part of a double act with uh, Paul Gilbert. And I'm not quite sure if that was the uh, the Martin and Lewis of uh, the formats business or the Waldorf and Statler. I was going to actually go with Abbott and Costello, but uh, I'll take Martin and Lewis. Yeah, we had the library shows like Gong Show and Pyramid and Dating Game and Blind Date and working with Scylla Black on Blind Date in the UK, which means you go to the dressing room and you have champagne. Uh, that was oh, Laura, team. Laura champagne. It just, that was my key contribution. But then they, then they asked in 2001, they said, you know, we need to up our game. All of a sudden, the format business had exploded, even though the format business had been around for 20 years. Nobody ever knew that until Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Survivor and Big Brother um, all kind of blew it up. And they said, we need to up our game. So it was me, moving me to, uh, to London, to St. John's Wood, and just loving it, loving working at Sony and Golden Square, where I met you and John McMahon and the, and the good team stumbled upon Dragon's Den. I was in, in Cannes and we was meeting with the Japanese broadcaster, Nippon Television, and I was trying to pitch our shows to them. 
And if I had done my freaking homework, I would have realized that they were probably doing these shows 10, 15 years earlier and setting contestants on fire. And uh, so I felt a little bit outdated. And then I did the strange question, strange thing. I, I asked a question to someone and I listened. And this woman's name was Yoko. And I said, oh, do you guys have any formats that you have? And she said, yeah, we just launched this Tiger's Money, but we're going to call it uh, Dragon's Den. And she told me about it. I said, do you have any material? And they, she showed me this. The, the, the trailer, they, the, the, what they shot was in a conference room at Nippon Television. Stark white walls, the fluorescent lighting, almost a folding table, a pitcher of water, a pot of coffee. And then these dragons would come in, these very eclectic characters with their briefcases literally filled with yen. Filled with yen and they'd set it on the table, open it up, stick their piles of yen on the table. And then they'd say, okay, Danny, what do you have? And they'd be very confrontational, these incredible close-ups where you're seeing the sweat and the pores of these people. And I go, oh my God, this is fantastic. And I ran across to Paul, who was doing meetings in, uh, in, our, in a stand in, at, at MIP or MIPCOM, MIPCOM. And I go, this is fantastic. This show, it's about people um, who have this dream, this idea, this invention, and they're going to go in front of these uh, five dragons that are going to make their dream come true. And he said, well, go for it. So two days later, we had a follow-up meeting with Yoko. We literally did, literally did a deal on a cocktail napkin. As we always say in the format business, it's a marathon. It's, it's not a sprint. Even after we got the green light to do it, we're out there shopping. Paul and I are shopping the original Japanese trailer for three years at MIP and MIPCOM and all the, and people are looking at us like we are definitely one taco short of a combination plate. And uh, finally, BBC2, Paul calls BBC2 and they produced it in 2005. And then Canada went a couple of years later. In America, one producer had was attached to it. He couldn't sell it. Mark Burnett does a deal with Sony. He takes it on in 2007. It becomes Shark Tank. And then now Sony has it in 33, 32 countries. Fantastic. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, but I need a 40% owner, you know, uh, ownership stake of your business. Yeah. So there was Sony and then Fox. And then at some point you decided you were going to be your own guy and form a business that you called Small World. And it's called Small World IFT. And I, I'm not sure I even want to ask what IFT stands for. <laughs> I've never asked you that. But it could be rude. And so if it's rude, we don't want to know. Uh, no, it's not, it's not rude. But I guess the interpretation of it could be. Because it's, it's got an F in it. And if there's an F in it, you don't know where you're going with that. It's actually Small World International Format Television. The acronym is SWIFT. And uh, it started with Nippon, the broadcaster from Dragon's Den. They had planted a seed with me, Yukiko and Yoko. I'd love to have you go through our library and try to find another Dragon's Den. And I go, ding! So that seed was planted. So we started in 2005, Nippon, Biosat as our, our, our paying client. So it's nice to start a new business and actually have clients that were paying you. And within six months, we had a show on ABC Network called Master of Champions. But then we evolved into when we sold a paper format, which was called Big in Japan. And it came from two Danish guys. They sent me this, this treatment, uh, paper format, and we're going to send nine, ten Westerners to uh, Japan, and they're going to go on these cultural adventures and appear on a crazy Japanese game show each week while they'll be eliminated and sent home. Now, that's a big concept. Sold it to John Sade at ABC. Uh, then that's when we shifted from being a consultant to a distributor. Go, Wait a minute. We need to represent this format. We don't want to hand this off to a Zodiac or Banerjee or Endemol is after us. Endemol Productions ended up taking. You just named it. one company now. Yeah, what do they call it, Ben? Is it Banerjee bounced around their new name of their company? 
I don't know. I think it may be called Bandemol. Yeah. I used to call it when it was Shine and Endemol. I called it Shine the Mall. Shine It's a French thing. If you say it for the French accent, it is very nice. In that small world iteration, there have been a couple of shows that have really popped, I suppose, best late than ever is, is yeah. probably one of the standouts, isn't it? Being on the ground, the only way to really find a format, even like a Dragon's Den back then, is just being on the ground and talking to people. So I was in South Korea six years ago, and there was a selfish personal agenda. Our daughter was uh, living and teaching there, so I wanted to see her. And while I'm visiting her in Seoul, she says, hey, Dad, my third graders are talking about this show called Grandpa's Over Flowers. I go, what the hell is that? She says, oh, they take these four legendary actors in their retirement years. They kind of set them on this bucket list trip. I go, oh. And then, of course, the universe responded. I think I went outside of my apartment, and then there was a bus board that had Grandpa's Over Flowers in English and then in Korean. I go to my room that night, and I'm flicking around the channels. There's on TVN, Grandpa's Over Flowers. I go, Wow. So literally called NBC, the head of NBC, Paul Taligdi from Incheon Airport in Seoul and said, Paul, I, I know we were talking about another show, which was called Three Idiots that I was scouting in South Korea. That was my business purpose to be there. But I think I found something bigger. And voila, it turned into, they changed the title to Better Late Than Never. And it launched four years ago with Henry Winkler and William Shatner, George Foreman, the former boxer, as most people know him from the grill. And then Terry Bradshaw, the former... Well, he is a Hall of Fame NFL player and, and an actor in his own right and certifiably insane. So they came better late than ever. We've done two seasons of it. And then we've had 12 other countries do their adaptations of Better Late Than Ever. And what was it like having Captain Kirk and the Fonz on the same trip? As everybody said, Henry Winkler is the nicest guy in the world. And he lives up to the nicest, sweetest guy in the world. He'll say hello to everybody. He's just that friendly. Shatner bit of a curmudgeon. William Shatner knows a little bit about everything to be an expert on anything. And that's kind of the way it is. And he's very knowledgeable. He's very curious. And he's 80s. God, what is he now? 86? And in great shape. You mentioned that you haven't traveled anything like the amount that you used to. How have you found the lockdown and, and what sort of impact? How is it affecting things? Pretty much you can reach anybody because nobody has an excuse that, oh, so-and-so was out of the country for three weeks. He's at a convention. It's like, no, he's right there. He's right in his home. He's not going anywhere. So one, everybody's accessible. Accessible. I'm used to just bouncing around. So many other people that we worked with, especially U.S. agents, just didn't understand. You know, they needed an office structure. And now people have kind of acclimated. But in terms of things like producing, clearly it's a big challenge right at the moment to actually be in a studio making the shows, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so some of the shows we've had when we sold the show to CBS, we originally had it adapted as a how to shoot it COVID friendly. And it, it lends itself organically, dare I use that O word. Uh, but organically, it could be actually shot COVID. But then as we evolved and that people were getting back into production, the safe distance, how do you shoot things? And people, they got their act together. Dancing with the Stars in Australia, they were shooting it and they were shooting it in, in lockdown type style thing. And they were very, had all the contestants in a very tight bubble. Well, one of the celebrities' parents had got COVID. So all of a sudden that celebrity and her dance or his dance partner, whoever it was, they were locked down in the hotel room. So they could only shoot themselves with their own phones, shooting the, the practice, rehearsal, the relationship. And they had this whole system by where the production crew would come and leave wardrobe at the concierge desk of the hotel. Somebody would bring it up to their room. While they were in the room, the production team 
went on the roof of the hotel, rigged it with cameras and lighting and everything else. So then they just basically came up the emergency exit stairwell out onto the roof and did their dance. And it's, it's, it's fun that we, we just read where Love Island, the U.S. version, Love Island second season, is going to be shooting at a Las Vegas hotel. We always say out of, out of crisis comes creativity. What makes a good format? What are, what are the sort of elements that you look for? It's, it's cliche, but it is simplicity. When I talk about, first of all, is it a format? Is there a structure? Is there a recipe? If there's not, then it's a fine documentary or docu-reality series, which is fantastic. But it's not a format that you can take that recipe, that secret sauce, and replicate it in other countries. But I was saying to somebody, to the MGM people, some of these shows that we've scouted, they go, oh, well, is there English tape on it, subtitled? And I go, and I said, which is, I know they're going to need it. But my benchmark of always judging if a show is success, successful, if it really is a format and you can understand, if you can, under, if you can look at a show in another language that you don't understand and you understand what's going on, that's a format. That's how we were with Nippon. They would send me so many different Japanese shows. I did not know, and I still do not know much Japanese, but I could look at that, I get that, I get this, I get this. And then later that night, I talked to Yoko and say, so what happens in the, in the second, between the second and the third? I didn't follow that. But if you kind of get the basics of something, then that, that helps you know that it is a format. I know what you mean about the Japanese game shows. The one that everyone knows, presumably, in the world is endurance. And it doesn't matter what language. You just watch that and you can't take your eyes off it. It's hilarious. An absolute gift. So many of the Japanese shows are just segments in a show. We had a show on MTV for three seasons called, three seasons called Silent Library, which was a segment in a long-running Japanese comedy variety show. They only did the bit seven times. And because it's called Silent Library, it doesn't even matter. There is no language. But six guys are sitting in a library. They have to pull over these cards. There's some sort of cryptic message on there. And then they all have to say, stay silent, why that one person gets that quote-unquote punishment. And they have to stay silent. The victim has to stay silent. You can be deaf because there's no language. There's no, there's no, there's no audio. And uh, yeah, so, so yeah, endurance is, oh my God, that, that, that is truly something you do not need to know the language at all. So what would be your lockdown book, piece of music, box set and film, should you ever find yourself in a lockdown? Book, I have two books going on Kindle. One is about a, a uh, his name is Paul Lind. He was a very popular American comic actor. He was he had a role on the sitcom Bewitched, but an interesting life that he led. I, I just started a book by Christopher Buckley, and I, I do have the Mary Trump book. I don't know if I can bring myself to read it, but this one here is called Make Russia Great Again, and it is hilarious. If you need a laugh, it is like in all this tumultuous times, and it's like every single hour in this country, you go, what the is going on? This is embarrassing. This is humiliating. It's dangerous of what's happening here. So you need a bit of a diversion. The movie Field of Dreams. I probably watched that a hundred and sometimes, and I can always catch something different, but it's one of those movies you can hit repeat, replay. Uh, records, if I had to, you know, it would be, you probably not a surprise, but it would be Goodbye Yellowbrick Road. The fact that it's a double CD, that helps. So you have 80 minutes worth of music, but uh, it is such a bit, it, it's, it's a myriad of musical styles on that album, and it was certainly Elton at his peak. And then I did discover, and I missed it, Schitt's Creek. Funniest freaking sitcom. Oh my God. Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, the whole cast. I got into it in its fifth season, so now I'm going backwards. But that is something I could hit 
then, of course, Seinfeld. You can always have Seinfeld any time of the day. Excellent. Well, Tim Crescenti, the man who makes a big world a small world, thanks for being on the pod. Oh, my pleasure, Danny. You're the, you're the best. It's been a good, good friendship, and I'm, I'm happy to do this and just happy to see you. So thank you. Best to you and your family. Thanks, man. Thanks, man.